Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from the Centralverse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard. Today is episode number 19. Now, this week was a really important one in the Centralverse. Each day, we waited anxiously for the announcement of Biden's Fed governor nominations, including the VC of supervision. Uh, then the promise of early December was changed to, quote, before the holidays, close quote. So, so that excitement faded in disappointment. But the FOMC meeting and the publications and press conference that accompany the meeting uh, were really just about as much excitement as I can handle anyways. Uh, so that is okay. Today, uh, we're going to recap that meeting, and hopefully next week we'll get the nominations. I'm thrilled to chat FOMC week with Alex Williams, research analyst at Employ America. Alex, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I do want to just make a quick uh, uh, note here at the top that I am actually uh, at my in-laws in, in Mexico City. And so I'm going to do my best to come in and out on the, on the, uh, on the mute on this recording. Uh, but if there is sounds of birds or construction or people in the street selling tamales uh, or buying old refrigerators, which is also something they do, uh, you'll know that's uh, why that is. Alex, on the other hand, is going to uh, come in crystal clear. Uh, and I actually, you know, I, I wanted to start here. Uh, you know, Alex, you've got such a cool and, and really a, a unique background. I wonder if you would uh, mind telling us a little about your journey, about your story of how you uh, ended up at Employ America, Employ America. Sure. Yeah. So I did my undergrad in economics at McGill University in Montreal. Um, and Away from it, just absolutely hating the idea of economics, thinking just this is all just so stupid. These are so this is a you know a waste of time. Like these are gibberish. This is all all of this stuff doesn't make sense. And towards the end of that program, I you know just started sort of hanging out in the library and just reading books in the econ section at random. Um, and wound up reading um, you know Schumpeter and wound up reading you know bits and pieces of Keynes and guys like that and. Uh, ended up working um, for a while as a, basically my job was to do quality control for stock music. So my job was to listen to Muzak for eight hours a day and, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. And that job gave me a lot of time to read, um, which I, you know, amply used and basically just kept reading and reading. And uh, eventually sort of encountered um, post-Keynesian econ uh, and sort of MMT world um, and ended up going to the Levy Institute uh, for graduate school for a master's degree uh, at Bard College um, and studied with Jan Kregel, who is a great, um, really just an, an incredible um, thinker and somebody who is, who is, you know, deserves, I think, more recognition than he has gotten. Um, and was sort of doing that there and thinking, okay, these are sort of, you know, a little bit out of the way ideas, like these are, nobody's really going to think about this. And I was thinking about what to write for, you know, a thesis because I had wanted to write something goofy about, you know, philosophy and stuff like that and Keynes and methodology. Um, and I eventually decided like, oh, you know what, I'll just write something a little bit more normal, a little bit more econ-like, but something that's kind of you know, a little bit boring that like nobody, you know, really thinking about. Uh, and decided to, in fall of 2019, write about uh, how to do uh, automatic stabilization style transfers between the federal government and the state government to make up for uh, tax losses in the event of a recession. It's, oh my God, the state governments are going to get wiped out by the COVID stuff. They're all relying on 
sales taxes, like how are we going to do this? Um, and so I had been talking with uh, Skanda Amarnath, uh, my boss, who was how to do basically funding backstops in the muni market, how the Fed could work on that, uh, which the municipal uh, liquidity facility ended up looking a lot like our municipal lending facility. It's been a long year, two years. Yeah. Yep. And so I ended up, I ended up uh, uh, basically writing up sort of a, uh, a version of that thesis that was, you know, sort of a pitch, sort of a, like a, a legal pitch um, that I published with them. And it was just like sort of a confluence of events where it was, oh, suddenly the questions that I'm interested in, that I've always you know, sort of been interested in are now in the front of everyone's mind. Um, and Skanda is very um, sort of admirably open to, uh, and EA in general is admirably open to um, sort of unconventional approaches for conventional goals in, in macroeconomic policy generally. Um, and so it was a really sort of a natural home and I was you know, sort of very pleased to be there. And it's, you know, I've been there for a little over a year now, and it's gone about as well as it possibly could. Um, so I am feeling pretty stoked about it. But yeah, so I was uh, in music for a long time and basically just sort of read enough posts and enough books <laughs> that I decided to go to grad school and then, uh, you know, got really lucky in the timing of, uh, you know, my research interests and what policy needed. Yeah, no, absolutely. It sounds like perfect timing and really important uh, stuff that ends up aligning uh, exactly well. Okay, yeah, that is just, it brings us to a really cool moment in that you've just got this really interesting background as well as, uh, you know, working at a very important and influential place, which is just so cool. And you guys have been pushing out a lot of, uh, a lot of awesome uh, research and, and, uh, and notes that are very accessible to the public. Um, there was something kind of going around. I'm not sure exactly where it started, but in the lead up to the to the meeting this week, uh, people were talking about this as being the most important FOMC meeting. Um, and at, at first, I kind of set it aside as a as a silly question uh, until someone asked me directly, and I had to kind of well actually articulate what I thought an important meeting was or not. So I wanted to kind of start by asking you that question, you know, what makes any particular FOMC meeting, FOMC meeting important? And do you think this one qualifies or should we skip this question as dumb as <laughs> in general? So I, I, I agree that I think that the, the general atmosphere had been saying that this was an important meeting and that people far beyond the usual audience that turns into, tunes into an FM, FOMC press conference was tuned into this one. But I think I think in general, people pay attention to specific FOMC meetings when, you know, other parts in the data or other parts in the narrative are suggesting that it might be a turning point uh, for Fed policy or for you know policy stance in general. And I think what led a lot of people to believe that about this particular meeting uh, is the fact that we've been getting some very hot inflation prints lately. And so everyone thinks, ooh, inflation's hot, gas prices are up. I bet you the Fed is going to do something about this, even if they haven't been paying particular attention to the Fed, you know, thus far. Like they represent kind of a, you know, a bellwether. And so that I think is probably why the general public is sort of thinking of this as a relatively important meeting. Um, I think a little bit more in the weeds. There's over the last, you know, since the, the previous meeting, there's been 
you know, reasonable and steady tightening sort of of monetary conditions in the US. Like you've seen the dollar appreciating against, you know, a basket of currencies. You've seen markets pricing in one to two hikes, you know, in the in 2022. You've really seen just sort of like, even though inflation is high and ostensibly, you know, the real interest rate, you know, in the short term is, you know, deeply negative, you've begun to see, you know, conditions tighten a little bit. And so I think people really wanted to see, you know, how Chair Powell was thinking about this and how, what sort of a tone that he was going to set for 2022, because, you know, there's already a lot on the table for 2022 in terms of there's a big fiscal policy roll off, the CTC ends unless they pass something, um, student loan payments resume. So there's a lot of, you know, fiscal drag coming into 2022. And so people are kind of curious if there is also going to be Fed side drag, you know, happening at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, yeah, and it, it, it's, it, you know, it, I, I love that uh, the turning point as, you know, in these pivot moments when whether the Fed is going to act or not. And I think those are, those are particularly challenging uh, when it's uh, pivoting towards tightening, right? Uh, particularly challenging on this on this cycle. And so, I, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think we're going to have many of these moments where we there's lead up to these meetings where the Fed is, has to, you know, basically deliver. Um, but I so to get even more specific about you, you've already mentioned some of the the, the fears about the inflation, I wanted to uh, ask one more kind of pre-FOMC meeting question. And that is like, what was at stake going into this? And you and you and Skanda wrote a really awesome piece that I think uh, just nailed at least a big part of what was at stake for both the Fed and more importantly for the broader you know, American economy uh, at this meeting. Certainly. So one of the things that we've really been trying to hammer at Employ America is this idea that the Fed, through both its uh, framework revision towards flexible average inflation tightening and also the specific forward guidance that it put out uh, with respect to the path of interest rate policy over the pandemic, you know, to some degree, both rely on this idea of maximum employment. And now the Fed, you know, is at the long end of this, this arc of saying, you know, okay, you guys got us the, you know, stars, U star, R star, these sort of natural neutral rates uh, of important variables that we can't observe and we can't do anything about. You guys are right. Those don't really work. So what we're going to do is we're going to say we're going to base it on maximum employment, which is great. And we at Employee America have been trying to push uh, for greater clarification of what it is that the Fed understands as maximum employment. And so at this meeting, there was sort of an idea that, okay, you know, we've very clearly met the inflation side of the forward guidance, you know, for rate liftoff, but we don't have any information really on what the committee is thinking about for maximum employment. And so this meeting, I think, represented we we have a piece out that was sort of a distillation of an earlier sort of much longer, you know, sort of almost treatise like piece from the summer um, about sort of beyond the Phillips curve is what it was called over the summer. But really, we want to drive the Fed to adopt a measure of maximum employment that is credible, broad and inclusive. 
And those those three terms, you know, sort of each have their own thing. You know, in terms of credible, that's really what we were thinking about for this meeting, because the idea is that if you see high inflation, but you haven't told anyone what maximum employment is, and then you suddenly say, oh, yep, that's it, we're at maximum employment, that sort of takes the wind out of the sails of, you know, using employment as a different metric from inflation. And so there's a chance, you know, in this meeting for the Fed to build credibility as a kind of inflation fighter or not inflation fighter. It's already built, you know, <laughs> ages credibility as an inflation yeah. fighter. It has opportunity to build credibility as sort of an employment champion, an employment advocate or a recession fighter. Um, and so we wanted them to credibly commit to that aspect of the forward guidance, but also to give a definition of what they're thinking for maximum employment that is broad and inclusive. And the specific ideas to those, you know, we have a number of pieces arguing that, you know, sort of the prime age employment to population ratio represents a better way to think about the labor market than unemployment because unemployment brings in all of these weirdnesses about participation uh, in the denominator of that. And we know from experience that even the same households uh, on the sort of current population survey that are answering, you know, in the BLS, you know, calls and says, hey, have you been looking for work? Right. The same households will flip back and forth, be like, no, I didn't do it this week. And then, you know, they get a call eight months later. Oh, yeah, I did do it this week. I still don't have a job. And you don't really have sort of a, a, a stable denominator. And so we want to have more measures that, um, you know, signify you know, here is where we really are on employment. Um, and we say inclusive because things like participation in particular uh, have differential impacts across racial groups. Like if you look at the aftermath from the 2008, uh, you know, great financial crisis, great recession, you see that, you know, both the, the labor force participation rates for both, um, you know, black workers and white workers make a full round trip over the 10 years after 2008 to back where they were, but the participation rate falls faster and falls, you know, more uh, for black workers than white workers. And so even though we saw, you know, extreme elevation, you know, in the, uh, black to white unemployment spread. So how many, how much, what, how much higher is the black unemployment rate than the white unemployment rate? We saw that increased spread, but that spread was also based on an understatement, an aggressive understatement of how many, you know, black workers were out of work at that time. And so we've seen, you know, narratives around uh, gender and childcare, and we've seen narratives around, you know, elder care and age um, with respect to the pandemic in particular. And I think it is really important that the we think it is really important that the Fed adopt a metric for maximum employment that is sensitive to the differential impact of recessions on uh, marginalized communities. And so we want them to credibly commit to a broader and inclusive definition of maximum employment. And I think that sets the stage perfectly uh, for kind of what actually happened. So, so let's so let's transition to that to that aspect. Given that kind of framework and that 
uh, approach for maybe some of the things that we were looking for, you know, what between the, you know, and, and basically the big two kind of big headlines, and then we can go into other details uh, as, as desired, but the kind of two big ones where they were, the Fed announced they'd, they'd accelerate the taper and, and finish in March instead of June, and that they would thereafter begin raising interest rates and, and maybe up to three uh, interest rate, uh, 25 basis point interest rate hikes next year, at least, you know, dot plots, the interpretation of those is always dangerous. Um, always. Super always. dangerous, actually. Yeah. Um, but so, yes, yeah, so let's, let's talk about that. What, what it, given that uh, uh, idea of what we were looking for and what was at stake, you know, what do we think about those, those decisions? Yeah. So I think that the immediate instinct is to think, oh, no, this is this is you know sort of a sharp hawkish turn relative to what he's been saying you know in other press conferences but the longer you look at what people were expecting and what he actually did it starts to feel a little bit more like he is setting up a hawkish response that is conditioned on some really aggressive uh expectations around where inflation be at the end of next year. And so it's interesting because, I mean, Powell has a lot of sort of cross-cutting responsibilities right now. He hasn't been reconfirmed, um, you know, as chair, still has to go through the Senate, even though he's been renominated. Right. Um, and senators, you know, are always, you know, sort of braying about inflation, very worried about inflation. And so for him to, you know, be blithely dismissive of it at this point, you know, I don't think that he can do that given that he's in. But if you look at what the expectations are, you know, he basically says, you know, okay, coming into this meeting, markets were expecting two hikes. I'm going to say, you know, you look at the dots, you read what he says, and he says three hikes, but three hikes with an expectation that we are going to see, uh, you know, not 3% core PCE, but, you know, 2.7, 2.8. And What's interesting about that is he's meeting the markets where they are in terms of saying, okay, okay, you guys are right. Like there's, there's, you know, hikes incoming next year, but he's tying the scale of those hikes to a very aggressive um, expectation on inflation, which creates a lot of space for, you know, a downside surprise to inflation that justifies a slower pace of tightening, um, which I think is kind of the, you know, there's a lot in central banking that is very, you know, sort of you're doing Jedi mind tricks with a large crowd of people um, and you're sort of expecting yep. what they're expecting, what you're expecting, that they're expecting that you expect. And so I think that, you know, taper is going to come down quickly, but that's also, you know, at EA, you know, our the house view is that, you know, taper is important mainly as a signaling mechanism. Uh, about the path of rate hikes and not so much as a, you know, mechanism um, for, you know, actively providing accommodation through the portfolio channel, even though that happens in, in the bulk of it, it's a swap of one riskless asset for another. Um, and so it is important insofar as it signals the Fed's expectations and, you know, signals the Fed is not going to continue asset purchases and also start hiking rates at the same time. Like it's not going to do that. Um, 
So I think really what Powell has done is he has set this expectation that, yeah, we will be reasonably hawkish next year if things really continue to stay hot, you know, in the inflation numbers, because he also in the statement, you know, pushed back in a number of places in both his his prepared remarks and also uh, the Q&A itself, you know, really pushed back on these narratives that a lot of people are trying to run with about the idea of this inflation being caused by, you know, labor market issues, whether labor shortages or, you know, um, nobody wanting to work, uh, you know, sort of service jobs that they worked pre-pandemic. And he's really right to sort of push back on that narrative, because as you dig into the data, you can see that there's, you know, a lot of this inflation is coming from, you know, durable goods channels, which are, capital intensive and which, you know, rely on these sort of long supply chains, you know, crisscrossing the globe that have to, you know, pass through all of these different nodes of the transportation and logistics system, which is all gummed up right now. And so he was sort of very careful to say, you know, insofar as this is, you know, a hawkish read, um, it's not impossible that we would be at something like a short run you know, level for maximum employment, you know, in the next six months. Like, obviously, there is uh, still dramatic labor market gains to be had, but that those will be had, you know, in line with, you know, adaptation of the economy to, you know, sort of different factors and not purely in, um, you know, getting the exact people sort of back to work. So, you know, I'm hesitant to say something like that because it, you know, risks, uh, uh, you know, declaring victory when victory is not something that is to be declared, but it also <laughs> rests on, on what I think of as sort of a core argument from our piece over the summer, which is to say, yeah, there is a short run notion of maximum employment where you are managing, you know, how much demand do you want to dump in to get people pulled into the labor force? Uh, like how much heat are you willing to tolerate in that um, is sort of one set of questions that is completely distinct from the set of questions. All right, if we actually appropriately manage this and like shorten recessions and stuff, we can still get to, you know, iteratively higher and higher you know, rates of employment, iteratively better and better jobs. Like we can continue to improve things. Like meeting a short run, like, okay, let's take a breather for a sec, does not mean that we've gotten to where we're going. Um, and so I think that Powell has done sort of a good job in this, um, con in, the, in, the, in the, the, you know, the press conference for the committee meeting in sure. setting up a hawkish path that is not actually hawkish. Right. Yeah, it's such an interesting, um, and you're absolutely right. And that came through really clearly in the in the press conference. There was a lot of color there, and it. I did have a, a moment this week as I was watching this and thinking, oh man, remember the days. And I actually, you know, I wasn't paying attention in these days necessarily, but pre press conference, and there were even days pre statement about what the meeting was going to be. And so you know, you do get a lot of that. And this one, and I, and I, this is something that I didn't necessarily pick up on as I was watching, but as you're speaking, just is obviously so true. And that is that there was this, there is still this idea of a test, right? That they're, that they're going for it. Powell made it, he made these, that he was looking for these certain tests, these certain criteria to be met before he began 
tapering. Um, and he was very explicit and uh, uh, direct about saying what those, what that test was. Although that test language has kind of gone away in its most direct form, there is definitely still that aspect of, uh, of I, I like your framing that this is, they've set themselves on a, a rather hawkish path that serves purposes both for the year ahead, as well as like the Jedi mind trick playing with the, the markets and playing with the, the Congress and everything uh, and the, the public. Uh, but it also, there, that test is still there. And there's this, this path is by no means uh, predefined or, or, or guaranteed. Um, and that, that came through in, in the press conference really well. Um, you know, I thought one of, I loved also the line about long and variable lags, the, the Friedman, uh, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, which is, which is ridiculous when you, when you like a line like that is ridiculous when you think about the fact that, you know, if you can have markets already beginning to tighten on the anticipation of hikes, are those really long and variable lags? And that actually kind of gets at something that has been kind of an interesting problem uh, lately, I'm sorry to do a little bit of inside baseball sort please, of meta discourse, please. but one of the things that I think is is sort of most interesting lately is that there's been a kind of tension between. So there's this idea, you know, in in journalism of quote unquote media macro, right? Where it's like there's a particular you know econ 101 understanding of macro that you know people will default to you know journalists writing stories or whatever non-experts will use right and it's like you can't invest based on that it's not actually true it like sounds truthy um but it like really is not actual macro um like it might work if you're you know pitching you know uh uh you know a vc on something um but if you're pitching a macro person on something you'll get you know sort of laughed out the door. Yep. Um, but I think that what what recent you know issues for the Fed have really sort of showcased is that there is something that is like there is a there is a very uh, parsable difference between what I think of as macroeconomics professor uh, Fed watching and sort of more market based Fed watching, where market based Fed watching is sort of you know, marking everything to market. What is everyone expecting? What are the bond markets doing in response to this? And it has the benefits of being very, very timely and very, very accurate about movements at the front end of the curve, but tends to, you know, not be terribly, terribly interested in what those movements uh, at the front end of the curve mean for things like business investments and growth at the long end of the curve. Like it's not, the goal is to know what the Fed is doing and why, rather than to take a position on what monetary policy the broader economy needs. And there's like versions of this narrative that you can see. I mean, people are sort of there's an argument going around that, you know, long ends, especially in the US, long end rates aren't really going to rise appreciably until, you know, sort of the the market community really believes that there is a hot long run growth path for the US. Right. And so they're not in charge of monetary policy. So they're not going out there and saying, you know, we need lower rates forever to get on the hot growth path to be able to get higher rates. But there is an understanding that those aren't going to show up until that is broadly believed in. 
Whereas, so, so you have this thing where it's sort of more descriptively accurate, but not super interested in, you know, saying what ought to be done for the good of the broader economy. It could just tell you where it's at. And then there is macro professor, you know, Fed watching, which is trying to only say that, but doesn't necessarily have as good of a grip on the moment to moment um, causal linkages and updating, like what channels monetary policy actually flows through and what different indicators, you know, actually mean to the people who act on those indicators. And so you wind up in this position where, you know, someone who's doing sort of market-based watching tell you whether the, you know, market is tightening or loosening, but isn't really going to tell you whether it's objectively tight or objectively loose, because you can see directions based on how different indicators react to one another. And that's the most that you're looking for. And that's what Fed conferences are really good at saying is, you know, we're going to go incrementally tighter from here or we're going to go incrementally looser from here. Whereas if you come into this from the perspective of a macro professor, you think, okay, there is a rate interest rates relative to the inflation rate that are objectively loose, are objectively tight, and a range that are neutral. And the Fed is like, rather than, you know, steering a boat against waves that are coming at it is moving between these three discrete positions, you know, to a greater or lesser degree. And, you know, sort of a macro professor will think, okay, it's going to do this. The Fed is going to decide which one of these three positions to be in, uh, you know, based on what the long-term needs of the economy are. And so, if that means abruptly tightening to get to where it needs to be or abruptly loosening to get where it needs to be, it'll do that and that'll be reflected in its actions, but it's fundamentally, in their view, choosing sort of a setting. Um, whereas sort of more market-based ones are saying, no, they're nudging things in a direction. And so it's led to, you know, sort of substantial differences in how to read data that does come in because um, I mean, some people, you know, point to the fact that the, you know, if you look at the overnight inflation rate and the, uh, you know, realized the overnight interest rate and the realized inflation rate, you say, oh, good God, the, you know, overnight interest rates are deeply real interest rates are deeply, deeply negative, like inflation is, you know, 6% and the overnight interest rate is nothing. And so it's really negative 6%. Um, but the thing is, is, is you're not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's not that simple. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so people yeah. look at that and say, oh, this means policy is objectively incredibly loose right now. And so they have to move it to something where, you know, that interest rate is, you know, closer to zero, even if that means doing something that, you know, sort of a market based Fed watcher would see as like, oh, my God, what do you mean you're going to price flights? That's insane. No one's doing that. Um, but then the macro professor will be like, no, but it has to get to where a neutral position is. And so it's it's interesting to watch these two kinds of perspectives uh, sort of duke it out among one another, because especially because, you know, Powell is the first Fed chair in a while to not sort of be coming from the academic economics establishment, right? He doesn't have a PhD in econ. This, people make a big deal out of this. And I think that this is partly the benefit that you get from someone who is coming in with a sort of a more market-based 
uh, understanding is that instead of thinking about things in terms of here is what tight policy loose policy is and here's what we have to do given those two facts he's you know sort of looking at the markets and saying okay i see what you guys are thinking that we're going to do and i think that we can make you think that we are going to do what you think we think you think we think you're going to do but we can set it up in such a way that there's a possibility of a downside surprise to keep things a little bit easier and that's really not a position that you would arrive at you know from taking a sort of a macro professor viewpoint that says there is objectively tight and objectively loose policy. I think I think that that's kind of just like an interesting an interesting way to think about the way that people have been arguing about this lately. Yeah, no, it absolutely is and it's a and it underlines the uh, the idea of that that personnel in these in these uh, you know at the Fed and at even at other independent agencies in air quotes independent agencies matter uh, matter a lot that although we you know and this is not a this is not another episode about the independence but but sometimes when we one of the claims for the independence is that you know is like well they're just the the technocratic experts and therefore there is you know that's why they 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 need the independence but there's a lot of this like you said that is just uh, that uh, although there there are very obviously very smart people there that have very knowledge have a lot of knowledge and, and information and access to to resources to do this that there's a lot more to it and uh, than just that comes through and that these you know your your perspective or even as far as things of you know as research about like what kind of economic environment you grew up in having an effect and, and all and all sorts of stuff and that I think in 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 the way that the Fed runs today, those I think come through particularly clear in in, in the press conferences, which is cool to see. Um, Certainly, absolutely. I, you know, I've got I got one more question, but was there anything else? Uh, I wanted to give a chance to react to anything else within the meeting or or, or anything there before I asked I asked the last question, which will be what what comes next. No, I think I think I think we can start talking about what comes next. I think that there's enough enough sort of meat there to chew on of both meeting and meta meeting. Yes. <laughs> so what does come next? What you know, as, not necessarily as predicting what the Fed will do per se, but as you know, as for for listeners, I guess, and and from from your perspective, what are some things that you're? Uh, I guess I'll have two parts to this question. What what are some things you're you're looking you're going to be watching and looking at, and then you know how do you hope that the the Fed reacts. Yeah, so I think I think the big thing that I'm I'm kind of coming into the year thinking about especially with respect to, you know, Fed policy is like how inflation is going to evolve, evolve over sort of the, you know, space of next year. Because what's interesting about it is there are some very high pressure very very short run dynamics that are likely to roll off. And these are things like the price of used cars. Like we see that, you know, if you look at, you know, retailer inventories in new, like in new cars, there are tons of cars waiting to roll off the lots as soon as they can get uh, semiconductors in to finish ah, them up. Like sure, sure. you once that happens, you're going to have the floodgates open in terms of supply, and that'll really cool off a lot of the extreme price pressure where people are charging, you know, five grand above MSRP for for new cars and things like that. 
And so you have this sort of these, these shorter term things in the auto market, also in the energy market, like gasoline got weird and there was the whole, there's been a lot of tug of war there where people are sort of reluctant to do new CapEx because they're still, you know, making money back from oil trading through zero last year. That, right. that happened last year. <laughs> Uh, that yep, oil traded yep. through zero, and we now are seeing, you know, three fifty a gallon for gas, three sixty yep. a gallon for gas. So the uh, the investment timelines that people in energy have are not matched to the discourse timeline, you know, at all. Um, and Europe is having a particularly bad time of it in terms of you know natural gas right now. So I think in the near term, you know, sort of autos and energy are going to feed through. You know, they're they're they have the opportunity to roll over in the near term and also durable goods as well. I mean, we have the Christmas season is ending. Um, so we'll see a little bit of easing of pressure through transportation and like Lunar New Year is coming up uh, in, in China. So we'll see easing on the other side there. And there's sort of, you know, traditionally the, the first couple months of the year, a bit of a breather for logistics in general. And so they'll have an opportunity to get that sorted out, straightened out. So we may, you know, see those rolling over in the next couple of months. But, and this is what makes this so interesting, is there is the potential for a, a very real handoff to housing there. Uh, just because in terms of measured inflation, housing inflation components are not you know, real-time rent measures. They, right, right. you know, have to do with how the survey is constructed and how to have to do with how quickly people change residences. And what that ends up meaning is that rent inflation, whether market rents or uh, owner's equivalent rent, the sort of imputed rents for homeowners based on housing prices, uh, those two, if you see a big spike in housing, like we did you know, in the actual market over the last year or so, that stuff is going to feed through as a slow ramp into measured inflation. And so the hope is, right, that sure, that stuff starts to ramp up and provides really like a positive wedge for measured inflation readings in the back half of the year. But the hope is that by the time that starts to really bite, the pressure in autos and energy has rolled off and we may even see you know disinflationary or even deflationary readings in autos in the second half of next year so there is sort of an interesting time balancing act to be had there and i think that watching that while thinking about how the fed is going to you know evolve and make credible both its commitment to maximum employment and flexible average inflation targeting I think is really the basic frame that I'm coming into 2022 with. I think that's, I think that, that nails it. This is going to be a, a kind of tying it back to the beginning. There's going to be a series of important meetings. And, yes, and absolutely. Important, absolutely. Important data stuff coming in. Um, uh, we'll, we'll wrap it there. Uh, Alex, just thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. You can find Alex uh, on Twitter at Veb account, V-E-B account. And I am at Caleb Nygaard. Until next time, thanks for listening.